KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I am Nick Burns. This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere. Tonight on the show, later we'll talk with downwinder advocate and playwright Mary Dixon, longtime friend of the show. She's just returned from the nuclear ban week in Vienna and the first meeting of the state's parties to the UN treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. That's a mouthful, but it's some great activism. Mary was one of the presenters in Vienna. She's ready to lay it all out for us tonight on Radioactive. Honestly, awareness grows. And I think there's some hope, so it's going to look forward to that conversation. Also on the show tonight, our weekly update with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. We have a Q&A session with researcher and Salt Lake Community College student, McKaylee Blackburn. Macaulay, excuse me, Blackburn. Plus, we've got another episode of Lake Effect for you, where folks like us share our stories of our namesake, Great Salt Lake. So stay tuned for all of that, keeping up with the collaborative. And of course, stay tuned to find out how you might be able to add your voice. But first, let's jump in rallies and resources, Laura Jones. Yeah, so what's on your radar? Oh, well, the lake is the lake is sadder than ever uh-huh. with, the, with the record, record, record low. Ah, the trip story today. Yeah, um, and I'm glad it's getting some attention. Let's hope it means something. We'll find out when we ask some questions later. I'm also somewhat gratified that the fires have not been worse. The fire up in Centerville, people had to be evacuated, but then the wind shifted, the people could go back home. It's somewhat uncontained, but it isn't particularly growing. Uh, The fire down south by Bryce is relatively under control, so... I guess we could sort of call those winds for this hot, dry summer. And it is hot, Nick oh. Burns. Oh, okay. Speaking of hot, I talked about this last night. I'm going to harp on it again because okay. you still have time to sign up, folks. Tomorrow night, 6 o'clock online with Conservation Garden Park. It's the Creating Waterwise Park Strips. doesn't cost you anything. You just got to sign up. They'll send you the link, and then they're going to go through a whole bunch of information on how to save water through appropriate watering, plant selection, planned maintenance, and you can just pick their brains for an hour and a half. It shouldn't be that hard to rip the strip, right? Well, I'm just killing the strip right now. Oh, good. I'm not watering it at all. (laughs) I I did that with my house. Gosh, it was 15, 20 years ago, Uh and the neighbors came and looked and watched, and one guy's like, well, you know that's against the law. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I'm like, it is, is it? Well, I, I said, remember those fights, right? When people oh, would rip their strips and then yeah. they, their neighbors would turn them in. I, uh, I told the guy, I was like, well, thank you for letting me know. I'll, I'll just see what happens. Um, <laughs> That's a felony parking strip right there, <laughs> Nick Burns. <laughs> I survived. Mm. Um, I haven't ha- owned that house in ages. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's step by step. It's like one gallon of water at a time. It's like I'm, yeah. I don't want to put too fine a point on it but man i'm conscious when i flush the toilet anymore well the conservation garden park has another workshop on thursday july 14th in person it's a it's a work and learn about lavender i've kind of have a fantasy of becoming a lavender farmer for my retirement (laughs) but uh yeah you can uh, go to rallies and resources at krcl.org it's under community affairs tab click on that go sign up and then report back to us as well because i want to know how it went Lavender makes some wonderful, mm. like, iced tea for the summer. You can yeah. grow lavender and make, make flowers, mm. use the flowers for iced tea. It's quite good. Yeah. We have special guests because coming up uh, later this month, well, actually this week, it's a barbecue in the park with our friends at Crossroads Urban Center. It's Meet the Candidates. And it's also July Food Drive and the Golden Celery Competition is underway. Nick Burns, let's meet Bill Tibbetts from Crossroads Urban Center. Hey, Bill. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming over. So Our pleasure. July, it's hot. Kids are out of school. And I don't think a lot of people think about the need for food at food banks this time of year, but it actually goes up according to Crossroads Urban Center. Yeah, no, we um, started organizing a food drive in, in July about 15 years ago because we realized that every year the need went up because kids were out of school, they weren't getting food meals at, at school. Um, but donations, you know, are tend to be the heaviest in, in uh, around the holiday season, not, not in July. Um, which is too bad because kids are hungry, like you said, out of school. I mean, it's it's rather shocking when you think of, what, 10,000 kids go hungry every day in Utah? It's kind of frightening, probably more than that. Yeah, I, I mean, and so that's that's why we started organizing this, this food drive. And I, I think it's actually extra important this year because we're, in the first five months of this year, we, we've seen an increase of, uh, of people we're serving in our food pantries uh, of 65%. So up by two thirds, almost the need. Yeah, when it, it's wow. And in May alone, we were up ninety three percent over May of of the pre previous year. And so we, um, that we are seeing need on a well level. And so that's why this food drive is so important to us. What's driving all that, Nick? What do you think? Well, COVID doesn't help. Um, underemployment doesn't help. Part time positions where people don't have health benefits and therefore inflation? medical debt. Inflation can hurt. I wonder about you all doing these food drives. Inflation has to hurt. I mean, you still got to fill your trucks up, which has got to hurt fuel wise. Yeah, no, everything. I mean, it's, everything's up. It's everything yeah. costs more. It's um, donation, you know, everything. And, it, and, it, and the people who donate to us are. are People are hurting are hurting and too. donating right. less. Yeah. So are you in contact with, with people doing similar work elsewhere? Are, are other places across the country in as dire need as Utah? Um, you know, what I see from national reports is that, yeah, I mean, that there's definitely, um, I think that the, the inflation is hitting people. I think, um, you know, I mean... I was thinking about the other day. I was thinking, well, how does how do high gas prices impact a family that's living out of a camper, right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, there there are, but um, well, I was just thinking that in Utah, the a lot of our elected officials love to love to gloat about our economy and the low unemployment, but we have people going to bed hungry just like everywhere else. So. Well, All these riches are not <clears throat> trickling down. And rent prices have gone oh. up way faster than wages. So, I mean, it's it's um, it's just shocking how much they cost. The cost of living has gone up in the in the last year. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that too because I know Crossroads gets into that. But what's on the list for July? This food drive is all month long, and uh, you've got some top demand items. Yes, we taught our. The people who work in our pantry looked, did a, an inventory, and they said what we need the most of right now is peanut butter, cereal, canned fruit or uh, fruit cups, individual snacks like granola bars, uh, ramen, crackers, uh, canned tomatoes and tomato product, and, and canned soup. So those are the things that we are low on that we could use the most right now. Easy for folks if they want to go get a case of something and donate, whether it's soup or any of those items. Yes. Shelf-stable food that Good uh, point. can be transferred easily. Do you, do you deal in fresh fruits and vegetables, or is that beyond the scope of what you can easily do these days? Um, 
we we give away fresh fruits and vegetables just about every day. They um, with the, with the food drive, we tend to ask for things that we can store. Exactly. For no, I'm, I no, I understand that, and that list is obviously non-perishables that you can keep in a warehouse and distribute as needed. But I'm just curious that that it seems the work you do it really ups good for people, but it really ups the workload if you've got to have refrigeration and fresh fruits and you're dealing with heads of lettuce or whatever, it just adds a whole nother level of complexity, I would think. Yeah. And how are you getting the food to the folks these days? Is it still through the Hildegard Food Pantry? Uh, so we have, we have two food pantries, one on, on 4th East uh, between 3rd and 4th South, and then another one on Indiana um, Street about 1358 uh, West, which is, it's across the street from our thrift store. And there's a competition, Nick. There's a little gamification to this to oh. get people's, you know, their their best generosity coming forward, right, Bill? Yes. The, this um, we do a food drive in July, but some congregations, there are, there are uh, some local churches that give food to us every week, and they decided to get engaged with this uh, competition, and so they um, well, they turned it into a competition, and and the. As it happened, the first year we were doing it, so we had just received this donation of all of this um, of food that included a, a can of dehydrated celery that was over 30 years old the day we got it. And so um, we, we thought that oh. that could be, you know, they, we said, hey, this could be the trophy, and everybody loved the idea, so we, we've stuck with it ever since. It's the golden celery competition, folks. Check yes. with your, your local... <laughs> religious organization of your choice and there's a tie there with the coalition of religious communities which is part of what crossroads urban center helps to organize in our community yeah no we um be because crossroads urban center was set up by uh, a, a variety of different uh primarily protestant faith churches mm -hmm. we um we have always had different churches who've donated food to collect um for to support our food pantry, do, donated clothes that we can give away at our thrift store, um, and we back in the '90s said, you know, these are these people who care about poverty. We should give them a way to be involved in issues like ending homelessness, reducing hunger, because uh, it's better to have people not need to get help from a food pantry. Exactly. How about for folks who are listening right now who are in need themselves? Do they need an appointment to come and get some food? Is there Are there requirements? Do you serve walk-ins? How does that actually work for people who have hungry kids? You know, we're, we're open Monday. Our downtown food pantry is open Monday through Friday from 9 to 5. Our pantry on, um, on Indiana is, I'm going to space the hours right now. I can't believe it. Um, but there are it's you can find out about our hours and our location on our website www.crossroadsurbancenter.org okay before we let you go though we got to figure out how to get our questions in or ready for meet the candidates barbecue july 13 yes. 6 to 8 liberty park okay well this is exciting because i it's one of the one of the first things that made me realize when i i had scheduled a pavilion for the meet the candidates barbecue in 2020 and one of the first things I realized was, okay, I guess we're gonna have to cancel the barbecue. It was like three days <laughs> later. I, I, you, you couldn't, res and so um, for me, it's really exciting to be able to get people together again. We've been organizing this barbecue, I think for 18 or 19 years. And the idea is 
that we invite our, our clients, our volunteers, our supporters, our friends to come and eat a meal together in the park. And then we also invite people who are running for office so that they can hear directly from people who are dealing with issues of hunger, dealing with housing instability, um, who usually candidates don't hear from. And so we've invited all of the people running for the state legislature in, in, the, in the Salt Lake, larger Salt Lake area, um, and, and for running for county office, because I, it's um, that we think candidates need to hear from, from everybody. Right, it tends to be the, the richest voices tend to get heard first, I think. Do you have an RSVP? Can you give us like a list of whom those candidates willing to show up, who they might be, um, who they will be? Too soon to know? I, I There are names I could name, but I don't want to do You're so because- You're extending the invitation. Because I don't, there are people I don't want to leave off on accident. Okay. There are people who are planning well, to- let me ask it like this. In previous years, has the turnout of people running for office been pretty good? We've had over 20 candidates before. So Excellent. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. I was looking at the latest City Weekly that is up now online at cityweekly.net, and one of the cover stories there is everyone in Salt Lake City says they want more affordable housing until the city plans to put it near them. <laughs> and there are quite a few good uh, quotes, including one from Bill Tibbetts. If the city doesn't do more to promote affordability, we will run out of time, land, and opportunity. Just boil it down for us. What do you think needs to happen here? Crossroads has been in this fight for a, a long time, called on city and county to use ARPA funds, et cetera, to, um, to vote to affordable housing. Where do we sit? What needs to happen, Bill? I think we need to stop anticipating what the legislature will do if we do the right thing. We need to do, it's time to, to do what needs to be done. And I think, you know, that we need to California, every city in California now has a no net loss policy where they have to analyze how much affordable housing they need and every new project they have to, they have to determine, will, can we meet that need if this project doesn't include affordable housing? And so I think we need to look at, uh, at doing something like that. We need to, and because the truth is, is that every new development that, that isn't inclusive, doesn't include affordable housing, means we've lost an opportunity to meet the unmet need. And the way things are going right now, every, no project will, will be inclusive and so if we, we need to start putting affordability at the center of things and not just uh, hoping that market forces will figure things out. All right. Bill Tibbetts, the Poverty Summit coming up in August that Crossroads also puts together. We'll have you back and uh, dig deeper into the housing situation. Right. Sound good, Nick? Right. And we know that there, there is a movement now for those couple apartment buildings that are fairly near the county buildings mm -hmm. that are going to become redone, re rehabilitated, so to speak. For, but stay affordable. Uh, that's the plan is to stay affordable, especially for seniors in need, mm -hmm. which is pretty exciting. But I think it's a drop in the bucket, those yeah. couple hundred what is it, 240 units it'll yeah. be, something like that? Yep. Yeah. So Bill Tibbetts, website one more time for folks to catch up on the food drive, the golden celery competition, yes. the meet the, the candidates barbecue, and so much more that you do in the community. Okay. Uh, it's www.crossroadsurbancenter.org. Thank you so much. Nick, when we come back, we're going to get into our Great Salt Lake Collaborative update. We're going to start with another edition of Lake Effect. Excellent. My name is Josh Craner. I'm a sixth grade teacher at Emerson Elementary School. I've been teaching sixth grade for six or seven years now, 
We learn about ecosystems in the sixth grade science core. So I've been taking them to the Great Salt Lake. We go with all the sixth graders and um, do some different activities down there. Honestly, through teaching my students about the Great Salt Lake, I have gained a greater appreciation. I didn't understand that it was in danger. And the more that I've been learning about it, I've become more passionate about it. You know, giving my students an opportunity to learn about something that in their lifetime, it is changing and not for the better. And so hopefully in their lifetime also, they'll be able to start to see it change for the good um, and then help them to understand that they can be a part of that. My name is Miracle and I am a student in Emerson, sixth grade class. If it dried up, that would really hurt the ecosystem because that would kill all the brine shrimp that live there and that would affect all the birds that eat the brine shrimp. Tons of water is being diverted out of the lake, so if people try to conserve more water, that could help. My name is Colby. When we went out just for this Mother's Day, we went out to the boardwalk. It was sad seeing how dried up it was. I think it might ruin our income from skiing and snowboarding because there's so much tourism there and it would make it unlivable. My name is Frederick. The most memorable time was probably when I went there with my older brothers and um, my oldest brother threw me in and so I was swimming around for a little while and then they decided to get in. It was fun. In my opinion, bringing awareness to the lake because I barely knew anything about the lake and then I started to explain my amazing teacher over there taught me about the lake. You kind of fall in love with the lake, in a way. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. That's right. Lake Effect podcast with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, our friends at Utah Public Radio, producing that, Nick Burns. Pretty exciting, and it's always fun to hear what they do, so it's always a treat to hear the lake effect. Some interesting news, though, that's kind of sad about the lake, and it's another Utah record that we don't really want to be proud of. That's right. So Salt Lake Tribune today online, sltrib.com. Lake hits another low by reporter Leah Larson. Let me just get the key graph here that is just kind of job-dropping. So Utahns have kept regular records of lakes elevation since 1847, Leah reports. And on July 3rd, so just a couple days ago, U.S. Geological Survey reported an average daily surface water elevation of just 4,190.1 feet above sea level at their gauging stations on the lake's southern end. So this beats the record uh, set on July 23rd of last year of 4,191.3 feet. Um, And just in October, 4,190.2 feet. And according to the scientists that Leah Larson reported with the Salt Lake Tribune spoke to, this is going to keep dropping until late fall or early winter. Assuming it rains and snows Mm -hmm. in late fall and early winter, yes. And it's really... It's really sad. There, I mean, the islands are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dust bowl. Yeah. Um, you, you can check all the Great Salt Lake Collaborative news at greatsaltlakenews.org, including a great one from Nadia Flaum about, are you watering your lawn wrong? USU's water checkers can help you figure it out. There's also a story in there uh, from Amy Joy Donahue, and it's how Bear Lake pumps millions of dollars into Utah and what it might mean for the Great Salt Lake. Amy Joy O'Donohue with Deseret News. 
and lots of different organizations part of this collaborative. But we get lots of questions, Nick. Lots of questions. And that brings us to our next special guest in Rallies and Resources, Macaulay Blackburn, intern with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Hello. Hi. So glad you're here. And you're also a student at Salt Lake Community College. Yes, I am for a little bit longer and then I'll hopefully move on. <laughs> and it sounds like what you're interested in is combining journalism with environmental studies, which seems like a really good plan these days career-wise. Yes, yeah, I I was a social work major and then I just realized that there's really nothing more important that I could be spending my time to than to fight against the climate crisis and I want to find a way to do that but not have to get a PhD because I don't really think I have the time. <laughs> so there was journalism. There you go. <laughs> well, you do the questions and answers at createsaltlakenews.org. If you go to Lake Resources, you can find these Q&As. And Nick and I thought we'd just do a little lightning round with you. Nick, what's your first question? Yeah, how much time do we have to turn this around before it's just the death knell for the lake? Well, okay, so that's a little bit of a complicated question okay. because there are multiple aspects behind what's going on at the lake. One of the aspects is that there is mass die-off of the organisms out there when they reach a saline point of 17%. And right now the lake is at 15%. So we're only 2% away from mass die-off. And where is it more typically if it had more water? More like 10 or 11%? Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know. Yeah, but something like that. But anyway, it's way salty yes. and nothing's going to be able to live in it, which is a disaster in and of itself, separate from the water level. Totally. And okay. As the water shrinks, it gets saltier. So we don't have much time to get the saline levels back to a healthy place. But as far as when we won't be able to bring the lake back, I recently talked to a researcher up at Utah State University, and he said that we have a decade or two to actually start working on the climate crisis because that's an overarching issue on what's going on with Great Salt Lake. Um, as the global temperatures rise, our planet is getting drier. That's just the reality. And if we continue to have the global warming rise at the rates that it's projected at, we will not be able to save the lake in 20 years. There won't be enough water. So we need to act now on multiple different fronts, come together as a people, and save our planet. Come together as a people. Um, I, I hate to see that as a challenge. But <laughs> when it comes to this, I mean, we did see legislative action last session. Many people saw it as massive because it was a first step. And many people said it's not enough of a step. But it was something. So when it comes to the lake, I mean, I realize there are many, many different agencies and people involved. But who who steps up and oversees the management of the Great Salt Lake? Is there is there a poobah that's in charge? Yeah, kind of. So her name is Laura Vernon, and okay. she was actually appointed just barely. Um, her position was made by the Utah legislator in the past session. Um, so that's cool. But I was actually talking to um, a source of mine last week on a different question I was answering, and he said something that he would like to see from the legislator, which is why he's running, is um, a more a human network created to manage the lake where there are multiple people at the table. And now I just talked to my faculty advisor about doing a solutions journalism story on what happened down south at Bears Ears, where the five different native nations alongside the United States federal, federal government um, came together and managed Bears Ears. So we're going to explore if that could happen here and creating like a human network to manage the lake. Go Macaulay. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is there money behind this? Did the, are there funds to oversee this lake management that the management group or this 
person will have control of? I mean, is there money behind this? Well, so the legislator did allocate quite a bit of money to saving the lake this okay. past session. Um, there were a few different bills that had... It's a task force, right? Yeah, there's mass... There was like about $40 million, I believe. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Um, put towards figuring out what to do with the lake and managing the lake. So, yes, there is money by the legislator, but it did come from the federal government, actually. Oh, it's the ARPA money. Isn't it? So we <laughs> can, let's see, let me get this straight. We American don't like the federal planet. government, but we'll take the money. Okay, just to be clear on that. <laughs> well, it's an easy win, right? Because, you know, I don't think otherwise the state legislature would be saying, please take some of Utah's tax dollars. But, hey, we're flush with Fed we'll, money. We'll flush with, uh, flush okay, with your we'll money. <laughs> And also, no, but we do need the water, so we'll yeah. say yes. All tax. And yeah. when you think about the importance of this lake to the Western Hemisphere, it makes sense that the federal government is giving money because mm. um, there are multiple states relying on the lake being healthy. Otherwise, yeah. you know, we'll just turn into a climate disaster. We well, talked about that last week with Paulette Jaswell about the spiral jetty as a climate barometer. So lots of symbols in the lake and finally percolating up to national news you know locals have been writing about it for a while this new renewed initiative with the great salt lake collaborative but hey y'all you pay attention to the new york times apparently well it gets national attention yep. the way the des news and, and john the oliver don't <laughs> oh, and john oliver did touch on utah water yes so you mentioned how this is actually of world importance although here we are in <clears throat> relatively tiny utah mm -hmm. but just for folks who aren't aware or don't see the maybe bigger picture the Great Salt Lake is on one of the world's greatest flyways, right? Yes. For millions of birds. Ten th million. They need a place to hang out on their way north and on their way south. They do. And, and they don't go to Vegas. They don't gamble. <laughs> they no. come to the lake. So They like the lake. I like the lake. <laughs> so as the water drops, I presume that's decimating the wetlands that the birds like. It if is. it gets too salty, they'll lose the brine shrimp to eat. Yep. What and else is at flies. risk? And the, okay, the flies. Yes. What else is going to be at risk for the birds? Well, so I can't remember the source who I talked to, but if you go to greatsaltlakenews.org, you can see I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I talked to somebody, and he said that um, there will be just devastating consequences to these birds. We will see mass die-offs of these birds because they won't have food. They won't have a place to come. They won't, yeah, so. Well, there's a domino effect, right? If they mm -hmm. don't have something to eat and they're food for something else, I yeah. mean, it starts to come our well, way pretty and, and fast. And we've seen that the, the East Asian flyway, they're already seeing birds die off, right? The, this is sense. from like Australia up across China, and up north, that mm -hmm. flyway, which is even bigger than this one, mm -hmm. and those birds are dying off. So, I mean, for bird lovers, there's a there's an easy pitch. Yeah. For lake lovers or, or brine fly lovers, there's an easy pitch. But has your research or your work come across ways or proposals that we can just showcase the amazing beauty and the wonder of the lake? Because there is nothing quite like it anywhere. Yeah, it's so unique and beautiful. And this was my favorite question to answer Ooh, so far. okay. Yes, I loved it. So I talked to a sociologist up at Weber State University. She's an environmental sociologist, Carla Trentelman. And she gave me some really great ideas. They're mainly all revolved around the community and bringing the community in and teaching kids from a really young age about why we love Earth, why we have to take care of it. And it supports us as well. Um, she also had some ideas about maybe having photography um, competitions or exhibits of the lake just to show people, look how beautiful this is. You know, look at these birds 
flying (laughs) or you know like look at these different generations of brine shrimp and they've been here for so long the pelicans amaze me out of uh what is it uh bear river migratory bird refuge up there so i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no it's okay i mean i love people just loving animals and earth so you know interrupt me whenever you want to is there is there a a single source we could look to to blame for the demise of the lake. I mean, it's easy to think we're growing too much alfalfa, we're watering too many green lawns, too we're many spraying homes. T- too many homes, too many pesticides, on and on and on. But is is there one cause that we could put most of our effort toward that would do the most good towards getting some water back in the lake? We need yes. a magic pill. What is it? It's water <laughs> conservation. There we go. And um, that comes from Lip humans. Yep, it's... Here's the great thing, I think, about what's happening at the lake, even though it's so devastating. And obviously, I mean, yeah, Laura looks very surprised right now. (laughs) Nobody says this is great. Why I think there is something good here is that this is a human-caused problem. And that means we can have human-created solutions. So if it's us who are causing the decline of the lake, then we can save it. And and I will say one thing the legislature did do was – augment change edit that use it or lose it water law right so yes. for farmers who in stream flow right Woo! so so farmers who felt like they had to use their water every year for fear of losing it right. could now rent out their rights sell their rights so you could sort of like <clears throat> let the lake have it yeah let exactly. the lake have it and you could sort of get paid to not farm totally that's something i talked to about a source i was like this is such a cool idea farmers can get paid to give their water to the lake and i don't know do something else if they want to or don't grow alfalfa grow, grow something different and send that remaining water yeah. to the lake so we can all because of here. now beneficial use so the lake can get and it. if you if mm-hmm. you look at say iowa a huge farming state they have programs there where they will pay farmers to like not grow corn to just let the land look like it did 100 years ago mm-hmm. and then you can hunt deer or you can hunt pheasants and on and on but it's not like this would be reinventing the wheel what, what they're talking about here no all right what's your favorite question i mean we've uh, picked a couple <laughs> so i hope there's another one that you just love and you want to share the answer with folks we're talking with macaulay blackburn in turn with the great salt lake collaborative and what's your question there Oh, man. Okay, so I got to think because my favorite is about the beauty and the necessity of the lake. Um, it's I, beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. And uh, just while she's pulling her, her answer together here, Nick, we're going to work on uh, a Facebook uh, show us your lake campaign because an eBay, I'm going to drag him into this. Oh, <laughs> He loves to go out there and take photographs. Yeah. But, folks, we want to see your photos over the course of the summer. So stay tuned for more details and where you can post. All right, Macaulay. Yes. Okay. So I guess my favorite remaining question that you guys haven't asked me is, is there a target level we'd like to maintain? Given the story we started with, Nick Burns. Yeah, come back around. Lows. So it's record low. How, ma- how many more feet do we need? What are we oh going to add? Oh, my goodness. How much of a ladder? <laughs> um, well, it's 4,200 feet elevation. That's what we need for the lake. Okay. But that is about the equivalent of two bare lakes full of water. So that's a lot of water when you think about it. Mm. And um, the source I talked to, she was not sure if we could get back to an elevation of 4,200 feet with everything that we're facing. But um, regardless, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight as hard as we can for the lake Mm -hmm. because whatever we do now can help the lake. And who knows what the chain events could happen if we, if we do what we need to. So you're saying 4,200 feet. Yes. And the the number today is 4,190.1, which when you think, okay, we're just talking 
But we're talking across the whole breadth of the lake. Yes. Like you said, two bare lakes worth of water that's missing. Right. And I actually included that in my answer on the Great Salt Lake Collaborative's website, how, you know, nine feet doesn't seem like that much. But when you think about the entire circumference of the lake and having to put nine feet on all of it, right. <laughs> it's and quite a bit. The overall lake is very shallow anyway, right? Like that, if it was full to 4,200, the average depth is going to be less than 15 feet anyway. So... A couple feet of water is going to go a long ways, but like you say, yeah. it's a lot of acres to cover. It is a lot, but I do think it can. I I have hope, yeah. and sometimes I don't feel that hopeful when I'm <laughs> so, answering well, questions. Well, you've made it, you're, you're such a positive person here, right, Nick? It's but making you, me feel good. No, yeah, no, exactly, Macaulay, thank you. But you could think about it as all this water that goes to people's lawns that's mm-hmm. full of pesticides and herbicides Ugh. that they dump on the lawn. How many? How many of those that we could rip out and save would add a foot to the lake. I mean, a foot at a time, and you could get to nine feet slowly but surely. I mean, I can't answer exactly how many, but I want everyone who has a lawn to change their lawns. Now, Mm. we need to. We don't live somewhere where this is natural. We live in a desert. We can't have blue grass. You you know know what? No more Kentucky bluegrass. No more Kentucky bluegrass. And if you have specialized questions, folks, like Nick Burns has right there, Macaulay's going to go look for the answer, right? Folks can go to the website and ask you a question. Go to greatsaltlakenews.org. That's what I say in every one of my interviews. And yeah, you can go to greatsaltlakenews.org. Go to the questions and answers. Take the audience survey. And you don't even have to necessarily have a question. You can just chat in with something that you would like to hear about. More about about on the lake, folks. This is like a two-year project there, and we're only six months in, Nick. No, and it's a great website, great answers. Mm -hmm. You can click around to your heart's content for answers comments and and everyone's got their name like this is from tony b from south salt lake yes. this is from maria from ogden so it's wonderful to see all these questions and comments that you're answering it's a pretty cool website will you read the the uh, notice about what the collaborative is because i've changed the song so while you're doing that i'm going to pull it in the converse this conversation was aired through the great salt lake collaborative a solutions journalism initiative that partners news education and media organizations, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. Read all of our stories at greatsaltlakenews.org. Well, Macaulay gave me some inspiration earlier okay. when she says, we need to come together. Mm-hmm. Got your fist in the air. That's a good job. You so. did too. Let's <laughs> put our fists up, guys. Macaulay, you are welcome anytime. You must come <laughs> back with some more Q&A on the Great Salt Lake. So, Nick, of course... I'm going to go with a little bit from the Beatles, right? And uh, Abbey Road coming together at KRCL. Stick around for what next, Nick Burns? We'll be back on Radioactive. The the Atomic Scientist Doomsday Clock is now at 100 seconds to midnight, so we'll talk with local activist and playwright Mary Dixon about her presentations at the recent nuclear ban week in Vienna. So keep it tuned. Outdoor Afro celebrates and inspires black connections and leadership in nature. Now with chapters in Salt Lake City and Park City. More details at OutdoorAfro.com. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru, a community partner of YWCA Utah and the Stand Against Racism Challenge. Mark Miller Subaru loves diversity. Learn more at YWCAUtah.org and MarkMillerSubaru.com. 
the KRCL quails are back and better than ever. For a limited time only, you can get one of KRCL's most beloved bumper stickers on a t-shirt. Donate today at krcl.org and get yours before they fly off the shelves. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Coming up on your Community Connection 90.9 FM and, of course, krcl.org. Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman rolls at 7 p.m. Keep it tuned for Rude Awakening with Liz. That's at 8. Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D. That gets loud at 10.30. And every weekday morning at 6 a.m., John Florence will greet you with a brand new day. Joining us right now on Radioactive, Mary Dixon, local playwright, longtime and tireless advocate for downwinders, and now just returned from Nuclear Ban Week. Mary, welcome back. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. I know you used to be on the show way back. You used to help us fundraise and yeah. pitch. We talked about your play years ago, and now you've been to Vienna, so you are now a world traveler <laughs> for... Trying to ban the bomb. Uh, yeah, yeah. For I better, tell you, it's tireless, endless work. But, but important. But for folks who who maybe haven't met you before, and to jump in here, you're a downwinder. You've written a play about that experience. Mm-hmm. Your family has suffered downwind tragedy, including yes. your sister, uh, yourself also. So, just remind folks about your own situation. You are from here. You're a downwinder. Yes, I am from Salt Lake City. And what people don't realize is that that fallout did not stop at county borders midway through the state. It went across the country. So northern Utah often got as much as southern Utah. um, And Salt Lake was indeed affected. And so your sister, your parents, you? My sister died. I had thyroid cancer, which is pretty common among people exposed to fall out from nuclear testing in Nevada. And the neighborhood I grew up in, Canyon Rim, my sister and I counted 54 people who had cancer, tumors, autoimmune disorders, and other radiation-related illnesses. I've talked to students, like, from the southern part of the state, and they, like, I wouldn't say joke, but they're like, oh, yeah, our dogs have had tumors for generations. Yeah, yeah. Pets and farm animals. I mean, even in Michigan, I remember when I was a kid, there was a thing in the news about the wind had shifted and there was radiation from a Utah bomb blast that they were were not going to let the cows sell the milk because of the grass one one week or something. Yeah, Yeah. it was in in St. Louis, all over the Midwest uh, and the East Coast. So, you know, folks probably remember 1982, 20 years ago, June 12th, actually, I know the date, was probably the the largest worldwide protest against atomic weapons. and do you see that momentum coming back with your work these days? Boy, do I ever. Oh. And there's, I see renewed interest in it as well. I really do. There are more people who know about it, who are wanting to know about it. There's a lot of work going on, different bills. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little later about what we're doing to expand compensation for downwinders. That's gaining momentum. There is... Um, a House resolution in the U.S. Congress that looks is urging the U.S. to join the U.N.'s treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Um, that's Representative Jim McGovern out of Massachusetts So and some others. So there are things happening. I mean, this conference was a big deal. Um, it was actually three conferences combined into a week. I stayed the whole week. Wow. Um, The first was the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. That won, uh, they they won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. So I spoke at their opening session. They thought it would be good to start off and 
really focus on the survivors and victims of nuclear weapons. Because if you want to ban these weapons, it is absolutely essential that you hear those experiences. Uh, so I, I was on that, um, as were downwinders from Tahiti, from Japan, from Kazakhstan. Um, there are downwinders all over this planet. When you, yeah, when you look at the contamination caused by nuclear weapons, development, production, and testing, not to speak of the use that the U.S. did, it's the number of casualties you can't even begin to count. And I mean, I'm I'm of an age when I can remember that you know our our atoms were the good atoms and the Ruskies oh, yeah. were the bad atoms. So yeah. you know our bombs were good bombs and we would have atomic powered sidewalks and All rocket right. ships going to Mars. But those Ruskies. Man, right. those Soviet, those were the bad atoms. Well, I'll um, tell you, all atoms are bad atoms. Yeah. It doesn't matter what country puts them out there. Well, I, I don't want to make light of it, but but I but I do want to ask more about your own story sure, and, and addressing sure. the addressing this group. But you know, sometimes for me, and I think this might be true for other listeners of KRCL, I feel like I fall into that sort of Tinkerbell theory that you just wishing will make it so. Yeah. And, and I feel like, gee, I vote. I do the right thing. Everything will be okay. You know, things are going to come back around. Yeah. And then I wonder, am I just losing my mind thinking that I can just wish it better? No, I think, I mean, and I even said this in a press conference huh. we did, that you have to believe we can do something or you just give up. And it's too depressing to me not to work for it. So I keep working. I don't stop. This is about all I do these days. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a full-time job. It, it indeed is. And, and I'll tell you one thing that really surprised me at this conference after I spoke because I, I put, well, they, they projected that huge map that Richard Miller did that showed where it went across the U.S. And people were stunned. This is like an international audience. And people were coming up to me afterwards saying, I had no idea. We just looked at the U.S. Oh. as a bad player. We thought you did the Marshall Islands. We didn't understand that your test harmed your own people. And I had a woman from Tahiti who said, you know, they always told us that there were only a few islands in French Polynesia that to fall out. But uh -huh. after I saw your map of how far it goes, of course it got all of our yep. islands. I said, of course. And, and a woman from, she used to be the head of Greenpeace um, from England, and she said, I never thought of this before, but... My family spent time, like years, we lived for years when I was a child in North Dakota. And uh. I had thyroid cancer, my sisters had it. And I, she said, I saw your map, I'm a downwinder. I said, yeah, from our test. Wow. And, and this was one thing as I talked to all these people there, I, I met so many people and talked to so many people. And the thing that really struck me, and I said this the next day when I spoke at another thing about the importance of story. and. I said, I have to start this by telling you the U.S. has killed more people with nuclear weapons than any other country, most of them Americans. Because if you look at it, we conducted more tests than any country, 1,030 out of 2,070 tests worldwide by various countries we did. And 928 of those were in Nevada on our own soil. So you have the downwinders, you know, who got fallout from those tests. You have the 
numbers, the servicemen, the soldiers who were stationed at the test site as guinea pigs to see what it would do. You have the uranium miners who are involved in mining the uranium. You have the people who worked in plutonium processing. I mean, there were fishermen, Japanese fishermen killed by our tests in the Marshall Islands, the Marshall Islanders killed. So, uh, and this was a horrible thing to have to consider that my country, I mean, I'm ashamed of it. My country killed more people with those weapons. We were the only country to use them than any other country. That to me is incredibly sad. And, and it just makes me feel like we have even more responsibility now to see that these weapons are never used again and to see that they're abolished. And, and you raise a really good point there that I think is very underreported that, you know, this is uranium miners. Yes. This is people at the Whoops Atomic Plants in eastern yes. Washington. I remember cases, because I used to live in Oregon, where, you know, there'd be equipment that was contaminated for some reason, and the, the guys didn't want to bury it in the trenches, so they'd take it home. Well, this is a perfectly good uh. electric drill. It's oh. just now radioactive. Right. But look, I don't have to go buy one at Sears now. Yeah. And so how far does that pollution go oh. and, to and families and yeah. kids and relatives? And, and, oh. and then when I think about it, and this is what was said over and over again, just the amount of contamination worldwide from all these tests, just how many people have suffered. I mean, the, the arms race had casualties. It, you know, there, there's a woman who wrote a book, and she always said the arms race didn't prevent nuclear war. It was a nuclear war that we waged against our own, as the Soviet Union waged against their own. It, it, to me, it's a great tragedy that history overlooks. It's very conveniently overlooked for some, that's for sure. Um, yes. You mentioned that, you know, we've killed more of our own in all these tests, right. including your sister. Any numbers to that? You know, people always ask me, how many, how many? You know, it is impossible to say. There have been, there was a researcher in 2019 um, who's Keith Meyer. He said that probably 500,000 people in the U.S., largely the Midwest and the East Coast, wow. died from fallout contaminated agriculture. That's a huge number. Um, the National Cancer Institute, 97, did a study just of thyroid cancer and iodine-131. And they said that up to 212,000 lifetime cases of thyroid cancer alone are likely related to testing. So if you add all these numbers up, and I was doing this with a filmmaker who's doing a film on you know, the, the legacy of testing in America, and we were trying to put together all these numbers and guesses. Okay, that was one cancer. That was one isotope of 124. Let's see. I, I mean, we couldn't even begin to come up with a number. Uh. But we know it's more than they ever admitted and more than anyone ever thought. And, and you know, and here we are today. We've got Ukraine. We've oh, got, yeah. um, again, Putin is threatening, saber-rattling. Oh, yes. We could pick all those words. But, but I was just doing the, doing the numbers in my head a little bit. I can, you know, United States, Russia, China, France, right. India, Pakistan, mm -hmm. the Israel. U.K., North Korea, and Israel, although they don't admit it. Those are the countries that seem to have what, near as I can tell, is 13,000 nuclear weapons worldwide. Yeah, nine and, nuclear nations and all those weapons still out there. And yet that seems to be the fear. It's like, oh, my God, Putin is going to bomb Kiev or something. Yeah. But we kind of ignore folks like you. We kind of right. ignore the Marshall Islands. Right. We kind of ignore the uranium workers who are clearly yeah. sick down in Moab and around that Four right. Corners. Right. And 
So here you are doing this good work. Thank you for going to <laughs> Vienna. And, and this title just fascinated me, and so you have to unpack it for me. Okay. The first meeting of the states' parties of the UN <laughs> Treaty to Prohibit <laughs> Nuclear Weapons. Yes, okay. State, well, actually, it's the countries. So there were probably representatives from 86 countries there. It's that, that okay, the TPNW, I'll just call it for okay. short, was the first legally binding international agreement that was comprehensively banned nuclear weapons. And 122 countries signed on to that back in July of, of 2017. More countries um, are still joining it. The nine nuclear nations, of course, will not. Yeah. Um, no surprise. And none of them were there. Even though these congressmen who are and women who are pushing for the US to be part of that treaty, they say we need to be world leaders. Um, they tried to get Blinken to go to the conference, and he wouldn't. Uh, bad photo op. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, although, you know, so Russia didn't have anyone there either. Well, good point. <laughs> this is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. We're talking with Mary Dixon, who is a local activist, local playwright, local downwind survivor who has been working tire tirelessly for decades on this issue. Yeah. Um, so there's the testing, uh, but, 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 but I want to go here for a second. That we've been talking about the weapons. What about the power generation? I mean, there's downwind of Chernobyl. Sure. There's Three Mile Island. There's Fukushima. Oh, yeah. And again, oh, how, many people have eaten, how, many people, yeah, how many people have eaten poisoned oh, fish? Yeah. Well, and, and also in elsewhere, not just Japan. Yeah. I mean, I've had a group of Japanese filmmakers here all week, oh. and um, they were— came for dinner last night, and they were saying that Fukushima, it's not just Fukushima, it's all of Japan. Those waters are contaminated. That has shown up in water on our West Coast. Oh, and yeah. in fish on our West Coast. So it does, I mean, you know, water flows. This is the crazy thing in Fukushima. Um, the prime minister and the power company are saying, well, you know, we're going to just put that nuclear waste into this pipe at the bottom of the ocean and make it go far enough out that the water won't affect the fish and the fishermen. And it's like, what? Uh, do you not know anything? <laughs> the ocean currents, you know. I mean, the water moves. We're, we're just going to put it, right, we're gonna put it in the water out there. Yeah. And these uh, filmmakers said, yeah, they're going ahead with it. Huh. And it's utter insanity. What's what? I mean, it's a huge Pandora's box we've opened, and you can't put that genie back in. So this ICANN forum and these really you mentioned three conferences all happening together, right. and 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 I don't really want to make this sound like you know the Forbidden Planet that '50s sci-fi movie, but but there's this entire beast behind this whole atomic weapons, yeah, and it's just at heart the military it's, industrial yeah, it's complex. It's the military industrial complex. And was that discussed at all? Did that come up? Yeah, that always comes okay. up because as. This is another huge takeaway. All governments lie. They minimize. They cover up. They don't want to acknowledge what those weapons did. They tried to tell people there wasn't really danger. They all, is any danger, they all did it. The United States did it. I mean, documents were classified. Um, we still don't know the extent of everything that happened. And the documents that have been declassified under Clinton are still redacted. So. There's a lot that hasn't come out yet. But from the very beginning, and this is what's so disturbing, um, General Leslie Grove, who was over the, the bomb bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, wanted to minimize 
how incredibly powerful and destructive these weapons were. He wanted people to see them as just another weapon because chemical, biological weapons had just been banned. And so he tried to make people think that these were just another weapon you could use. And he actually said, this was quoted, of the people who died, he said, it was actually a very pleasant way to die. Oh, Easy yeah. for him to say, is he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh. th- I mean, from the beginning, there's been this huge propaganda campaign um, to really minimize. How's that make you feel? I mean, you're, you're, we're here in Utah. We're in yeah. the United States. We're a fairly patriotic, conservative state. Mm-hmm. And you're somebody who's right on the forefront of being lied to and mistreated yeah. for decades. Well, we all were. It, well, uh, you yeah. know, we all were. If you look at the little booklets they passed out saying, you know, a lot of Geiger people say Geiger handlers are going crazy these days. Don't let it bother you. Well, or or build a bomb yeah. shelter in your backyard. Yeah. You could get, go live underground for a week. Get some food storage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 laughable, if not so horrific. Yeah. And that's the thing I say. I mean, if you just look at the how those weapons have shattered so many lives, the testing, so many shattered lives. And I heard stories from so many people. I mean, there were a lot of tears shed at this thing um, because it, it really, I think, is one of the unacknowledged tragedies of this planet. And it's ongoing. It's not like it's yeah, been Yeah, it's still fixed. an existential threat, you know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, we've only got a few minutes left here. Did the notion of atomic power come up? We now see they want to make these little tiny reactors that you could put in your garage. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it did, but not as much as... The, the weapons. weapons and the testing. But they're, I, I mean, don't get me started on nuclear power. Okay. <laughs> we'll save that for another we'll show. with nuclear weapons. But I, I do have to say, I just think it's so, so important that we keep sharing these stories because you can give, and I've met with congressmen and senators um, via Zoom, and you can give them all the data, all the statistics, all the facts, and it's out there. But you know what really gets them? It's when you tell the story. It, you can see it in their faces as you're talking to them. That's what gets them. And your own story, you were saying that when you told your own story there, it was amazing how similar your story oh, is to thousands of others. To so many others. Whether so it's many Tahiti, others. Marshall Islands, yeah. a thousand different places. Yeah. It's the same story. Exactly. It's the same story. So compensation we do have some here in the united states yeah uh, I very don't limited very limited largely 22 rural counties utah um, nevada and arizona and there are bills right now in congress to expand that to include all of utah and all of the other uh, arizona and nevada as well as four other states western states and guam um, and to raise the amount from fifty thousand, which barely covers chemo to 150,000 which still is a pittance um so those bills we're hoping hoping i I mean we've got 70 co-sponsors in the house 18 in the senate uh we're pushing pushing we're meeting with judiciary committee members and we're we're very hopeful i mean do you know that it would have expired this month the current bill if it hadn't gotten a two-year stopgap bill. Biden I mean, signed it. It's kind of a kick the can, but it at is least a kick it's the two can. more years. Let's kick it down two more years, but it does give us more time to build more support. And maybe Congress today, that's the best we can hope for is a perpetual can kick. Right? Because, <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, no, I know, it's I better know. than letting it expire, yeah, but it's pretty yeah, depressing. It is, um, it is. And meanwhile, people are dying, and they're going to keep dying. And, and yet, 
how do you maintain your own story and positive attitude when we clearly see, you know, Soviet President Putin's threats in oh, Ukraine yeah. is now leading to another arms race, which goes right back to I that military-industrial complex. It's, it's it's an awfully big stone to push uphill. It's overwhelming. Ugh. It's overwhelming. I have to say, just hearing everything I heard at this conference, it was inspiring. It was energizing, but it was overwhelming, overwhelming. I'm still, like, you know, decompressing everything. Were you the Utah rep telling our I story? I was the U.S. rep. You were the U.S. rep? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. How'd you get chosen for that? I don't know. They call, they emailed me and asked me to like apply for support, and I did. And I thought, oh, they're not going to do this. And they sent me a letter and said, will you come? And then they asked me to speak. And then a few weeks uh, later, they asked me to do a second one. So I think it's pretty amazing. And congratulations to you. Thank I mean, you, you are you are personable. You tell a good story. <laughs> you're 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 comfortable with the media. You're comfortable yeah. in front of a group. Yeah. So thank you. Um, it's my purpose, but not my one purpose. you would have not one you would have volunteered now it's, for. No, it's one I just keep getting pulled huh. back into. How close are you to other downwinders around and about Salt Lake in Utah? What um, kind of tightness I in your actually, group? Actually, you know the downwinders I work with most closely in Utah—they've all died. Mm. I'm the last one of the core group I worked with. Really? Yeah, and I'm working now with downwinders in other states, and boy, that's. So it, it just helps to have people who get it that you can talk to. And when it gets hard, you can call them and just cry, and they'll cry. And you'll say, we'll still go on. It's that great Churchill quote where he said, no success is final. No failure is fatal. What matters is the courage to carry on. We oh. just carry on. Thank you for your work. Not an easy topic. Not an easy no. mantle to put on. No. Does, does any of this compensation help kids, like kids who have cancers whose parents were sick? Um, no, uh. no. It doesn't go to the next generation, even though there's more research showing genetic damage. Yeah, I, I, have, on to I have read that, that, you know, the mom, and this, is, yeah. this has been researched in Japan as well, right? Moms yes. from yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm -hmm. the kids are also not right. in good shape. Right. Are other countries doing anything like we're doing compensation-wise? Um, Kazakhstan actually does a lot better job than we do. They pay medical care. Wow. And, yeah, they do. Kazakhstan, way to go. Because mm -hmm. that's where the huh. Soviets did their testing. But right. They're now an independent country. So what's Kazakhstan next What's next care. for you in all this, aside from you need a um, holiday? Well, we might try going back to D.C. in person in September. Okay. We'll see. I think they need to see your face and hear your story. I think it's powerful. Who would you start with among our representatives? Probably Romney. That's what I was going to suggest. Mm -hmm. Well, come back and tell us about that. Okay. Will do. Oh, I used to live right down the street from Romney's ex-sister-in-law, but uh. that's another show and another story. <laughs> My thank you to all the guests on the show tonight. Mary Dixon, thank you for taking time to come and chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, it's it's... It's sad, but it's really important, and it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And if all y'all out there in Radioland like tonight's show, maybe you want to share it, you can listen on demand on the mobile app, wherever you get your apps, or you can stream it at the Radioactive Archive, krcl.org. Check the Community Affairs time, community affairs tab, rather. Questions, comments, suggestions, radioactive at krcl.org. Next time on Radioactive, tomorrow night, Dr. Tamara Stevenson takes over Radioactive to explore Utah's new Ethnic Studies Commission. Friday, it's the Punk Rock Farmer. 
That's what we do here every weeknight. Send us a radioactive email. I got to go. Executive producer Laura Jones. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now! KRCL, Salt Lake City.